Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. October 23rd, 1856, Rocky Ridge, Wyoming. The Willie Handcart Company was required to make that terrible climb up and over Rocky Ridge, a march of 15 miles. As they ascended Rocky Ridge, it began to snow. Up near the top of Rocky Ridge, which is over 7,000 feet in elevation, the temperatures would have been well below zero. The wind howling, the cold and exposure would have been terrible. Among those who went over that hill that night, and there were many, one of them was Archibald MacPhail. Now, Archibald made it over the hill that night and down to the camp that evening. When he arrived at Rock Creek, Archibald was a captain over a tent. He had responsibility for all those that were in the tent. He searched about to take an inventory of all the people he was responsible for, and there was one woman missing. You want to talk about ministering? Consider this. Realizing that she had lagged behind and she was still up on the trail, Archibald felt it was his duty to go back and find her. He left the security of the sheltered camp and started back up the trail. He found her four miles back on the other side of Strawberry Creek. From the opposite side, the safe side, he pleaded with her to walk across the creek on the ice. She refused. She said she would rather stay there and die. Well, Archibald crossed the frozen stream, picked the woman up, and started back across the stream. But as he did so, he fell through the ice and was soaked to the waist. I presume the woman stayed dry. By the time he reached camp, his clothes were frozen to him, and Archibald was deeply chilled. There was no fire to warm him. The men in the camp were too weak, too exhausted to go in search of firewood. With no warm food, fire, or drink, Archibald was put to bed in the snow under a handcart. The wind blew through the night and overturned the handcart three times. By morning, Archibald MacPhail was burning with fever. They broke camp and moved on. Archibald would not walk again. He was too sick and too weak. They put him in the sick wagon. He lingered and suffered. Finally, just outside of present-day Evanston, Wyoming, Jane MacPhail sat by her husband's side in the dark of a wagon as he quietly slipped away. 
A small tallow candle burned, and Jane prayed that the candle would last until Archibald's mortal sufferings ended. Finally, the candle flickered out at the same moment her husband breathed his last. He was 39 years of age. The trail was a saga of heroes. Whether the company was Martin and Willie, Hunt and Hodgett that suffered so much in winter snows like this, or just simply crossing the plains under the best of conditions, it took power, it took effort, it took faith to make that journey. It was not something that the weak could do. Oh, my laws, I wish I had days to tell you all of the stories that we have learned about pioneers, your ancestors, and crossing the plains. I remember 10 years ago having a conversation at the church office building and hearing Michael Landon, one of the church's historians, say to me, in some respects, the story of the Pioneer Trail is one of the most powerful and compelling parts of the entire restoration. When I considered at that time the prophet Joseph Smith and all that I had learned there, I thought Mike was overstating it just a wee bit. And then I came to realize the prophet Joseph Smith was chapter one. The pioneer trail and the settlement of the valleys, that was chapter two. What Joseph Smith started, Brigham Young and the pioneers would finish and did so gloriously, and we stand on their shoulders. Consider this story. William Carter, Ledbury, England. If you've ever been to Gadfield Elm Chapel and learned the story of the United Brethren, which I don't have the time to tell you, that's William Carter. Now, William Carter was baptized against the wishes of his family. He winds up in Nauvoo where he meets Ellen Benbow. And when the church goes west in February of 46, William and Ellen are right there with him. Now, fast forward to winter quarters. In the spring of 47, Brother Brigham handpicks a group of men to go west to the valley. Young William Carter is among them. They journey out some distance, 20, 25 miles out from winter quarters, and then they realize they've got to go back. They've got to get a few things before they continue the journey across the plains. When William goes back to winter quarters, he finds Ellen gravely ill not expected to live. He was so upset, he hurried to Brigham Young to tell him, I can't go. My wife is sick. If I go, she'll be dead before I get back. And Brother Brigham said to William, Go, brother, and I promise you that your wife will recover and drive her oxen across the plains. Would you go? I'm not sure I could. But trusting in Brigham as a prophet of God, William went. His wagon was third in line as they made the journey across the plains. In that wagon, he carried a plow. He would be among those who arrived in the valley on the 22nd of July, 1847. He got there before Brigham did. 
William, as soon as he got into the valley, would unload that plow from the back of his wagon, and he would sink that plow in the soil, becoming the first man to sink a plow to plant crops in the Mountain West, as far as we have record. Later on, William Carter, or actually on that very same occasion, William Carter was among those men who diverted City Creek to soften the soil before they sunk the plow, which in effect was also a significant first. Now, later on, he was sent to St. George, where he helped build the St. George Temple. William Carter died June 22, 1896, in St. George, Utah. He was a temple worker, a construction man, but he also holds the, he went down in history as the first plowman and irrigator of the American West. Now, history has all but forgotten William Carter, the man who went forward with faith at the command of a prophet. I can only imagine what he thought about as he was crossing the plains. I sure hope Brigham was inspired. But William would go down in history for another reason. One of his great-great-grandsons was Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Would that have been the case if William hadn't come? I don't think so. Okay. In commemoration of the Pioneer Children's Memorial, I want to tell you the story of Marianne Weston Mon. She was born and raised in England. Her husband died before she came to America. Again, there's a great story here. I don't have time to tell. He was killed by a hateful mob. Marianne left England, left her family, her sisters, her beloved sisters behind, and came to Nauvoo, where she met and married a widower, Peter Mon, and inherited his five children at the same time. In 1850, Peter led the wagon company that came west. Along the way, Marianne kept a detailed diary. Her sensitive soul was particularly observant of the number of graves and of the dead that she passed along that journey. Then, July 12, 1850, somewhere in Nebraska, Marianne's little boy, Peter, just three years old, notwithstanding the repeated warnings of his mother, was in the wagon with his brothers and sisters, and they saw an old steer with a bent horn, and they were pointing and looking at the steer as the wagon went along, and little Peter leaned out the front too far, and like other children, fell in the front of the wagon, and the front wheels of the large wagon passed over him. The drivers of the oxen are unaware. The word is sounded and shouted, stop the team. The oxen stop, but the heavy wagon comes to a stop with the back wheels right on top of little Peter. The men in the back run forward, pick up the wagon, and pull little Peter out from under it. Marianne runs to her son, and she records this. He was bruised internally, so that it was impossible for him to live long. 
We did all that was possible for him, but no earthly power could save him. She said she called for his father, but his father, on seeing what had happened, had come running and seeing it, had collapsed in an emotional heap. The other men in the company had stepped around him to shield their captain from the embarrassment that they perceived. Nonetheless, when he gained his composure, he ran forward. His little boy looked up at him, she said, with eyes so loving and gentle, but he could not say a word. Quoting, he opened his eyes and looked so lovingly at us and then gently closed them and passed peacefully away and left us weeping around his dear little bruised body. Then loving hands tenderly dressed him in a suit of his own white linen clothes. He looked so lovely. I emptied a dry goods box and Brother Wood made him a nice coffin. We buried him on a little hill on the north side of the grave. The grave was consecrated and we laid him to rest. And we turned away in sorrow and grief. My heart is deeply touched when I read stories like that. And whether it's heroism or faith or incredible sacrifice or just plain grit and toughness, I love those pioneers. Some of my ancestors were among them, and I take pride in having an ancestor that marched with the Mormon battalion, that another that buried a son on the plains, and another lies buried at Winter Quarter Cemetery, and so on and so on. I stand on their shoulders and I'm a better man for it. And it does me well to remember the price they paid for the faith I have. And may it be so with you. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.